you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me this morning once again to John. The Gospel of John, chapter 7. Time flies when you're having fun, and we are in our 21st week of the Gospel of John. Anna asked me, how long is this going to go? The pace continues. We're going to be here for a while. Uh, We may take a break. We probably will take a break in the season of Advent. It's always fun to do that. But this has been a great study, difficult study for me, but a wonderful study to see our Savior, to hear John's account of him and John's reflections on who he is. As we come to John chapter 7, we come in our study to this long central section of the book of John, chapter 7 through 10, that cover actually the final year of Jesus' life and ministry. And that may sound odd. It sounded a little odd to me when I realized that. It sounded a little odd that we're already to Jesus' final year. Yes, we've been in this for 20 weeks, but at the same time, kind of feel like we scratched the surface of Jesus' life in terms of what we've talked about. And so I just remind you that John's gospel, as are all the gospel accounts, they're, they're selective histories, right? They don't tell us all that there is to tell about the life and the person of Jesus. And John in particular, he jumps around. And so there are significant time leaps in the Gospel of John that maybe you're not aware of. I've tried to make you aware of some of them. So as we come to this text, for those of you who were here last week and the weeks prior as we were kind of working our way through John chapter 6 and the bread of life and Jesus feeding the folks on the, on the, on the mountainside, we are now six months ahead of that event. So we've jumped six months in one week here. And how do I know that? Well, I know that because the events of John chapter 6 take place during the time of the Passover, which in the Jewish calendar happened in the spring. The events that we're about to read occur during the Feast of Booze, which in the Jewish calendar is in the fall, in September and October. And so we've jumped head considerably in time, but Jesus is doing the same thing. (laughs) Jesus is continuing to make others marvel. He's confusing some. He's scandalizing others in the things that he's saying, the things that he's doing as he reveals who he is and what it is that he came to do. And so today is no different as he interacts with three different audiences, and I will uh, flesh those out for you as we jump into the text. But for now, let's read it and uh, listen to it that we might see our Savior in it. I invite you, if you're able, to stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 7, verses 1 through 36. Pretty good chunk today. John chapter 7, verses 1 through 36. Listen as I read. This is God's holy Word. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. 
But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast, and they were saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. And yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. And the Jews marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And so Jesus answered, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law and that none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work. And you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Well, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go? that we will not find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please go ahead and be seated. I've probably said this to you before, preaching God's word to you week in and week out is no doubt a privilege, but it is also quite a challenge, and this in particular was a tough passage to know what to do with. I suppose there are many, I don't suppose, I know that there are many different ways to deal with the context or the contents of this text. But as I've studied it, as I've thought about it, I want to do it around three realities about Jesus. Simply asking the question that I think John wants us to ask continually over and over again. What does John tell us about Jesus here? 
What does John tell us about the person of Jesus here? After all, that's, that's John's entire intent, right? That's in, his entire purpose in this book. We've talked about it on multiple occasions. John chapter 20, verse 31. I write these things that you may know that Jesus is the Christ. And in believing, you would have life in His name. And so we're going to do that briefly this morning in this large section of Scripture using the three interactions that Jesus has with three different groups of people in this text. And for those of you who like order, like me, we're going to look at, first of all, his brothers and the interaction with his brothers in verses 1 to 9. Then his interaction with the Jews of Jerusalem in verses 10 through 31. And then finally, briefly at the end, his interaction briefly with the Pharisees in verses 32 through 36. So those three interactions and those three sections of our text this morning form the three points that we are going to unpack. And the first point is this. Jesus came to glorify the Father. Jesus came to glorify the Father. We could say by implication, therefore not Himself, right? Jesus came to glorify the Father and not Himself. Just last week, I was sitting with a young man who's exploring the Christian faith, and he asked the question to me, what is it all about? What is the purpose of our lives? What are we here for? And my succinct answer to him, which I then unpacked, was from our catechism. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer number one. Many of you know it well. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Bringing glory to God is our purpose. Now what does that mean to bring glory to God? Well, that's a whole other sermon. That's a whole other series of sermons we could talk about. At the heart of it, it's faith and trust in who He is. It's the worship of who He is. It's making much of God in all that we do. Right? Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. It has to do with our piety and becoming holy and walking in His ways. All of that has to do with bringing glory to God. But I, I bring that up because that's Jesus' purpose and He reminds us of that today. Jesus came to bring glory to the Father. Let me explain in these first nine verses. John begins our passage this morning as we pick up this account. He begins by really setting the scene. Jesus is moving around the region of Galilee. He has been for some time. And he's staying away from the region where the people who are most opposed to him are. As we've seen, John often records parts of the Jewish calendar, not simply as time markers, though they are time markers for us, as I talked about earlier, but also as insights into the person and work of Jesus. We'll get to that a little later. And so the events of chapter 7, they take place, as John tells us, during the most popular feast of the Jewish calendar, the Feast of Booths also known as the Feast 
of tabernacles. There were three great feasts in the Jewish calendar. There are more than three, but the three great ones, the big three, in the spring was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which commemorated Yahweh's deliverance of his people in the exodus from Egypt and the slavery they were enduring there. And specifically embedded in the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the celebration of the Passover. In the summer, the Feast of Weeks would begin. And that celebrated the first fruits of the summer wheat harvest. And it looked back to Mount Sinai and to Yahweh's call to Israel to be a holy nation set apart for Himself. And then finally in the fall, right about this time of year, came the Feast of Booze. Which celebrated the fall harvest, but even more significantly, it commemorated God's faithful care of His people in their wilderness wanderings between Egypt and the Promised Land. It was a week-long celebration in Jerusalem. Big deal. All of Jerusalem would come out of their homes and basically would form a tent city. They would make booths for themselves. They would make tents for themselves out of palm branches and all kinds of other things. And they would live in these tents all week as they vividly remembered and reminded themselves of what once was. And the end of seven days of camping in the tents, on the eighth day there would be a grand celebration and thousands upon thousands of people would pour into Jerusalem to celebrate God's faithfulness. So that's what's happening in the context of Jesus. And into this context enters Jesus' brothers. And when John says that it's his brothers, this is not his spiritual brothers, but these are his younger biological brothers. These are the sons of Mary and Joseph born after Jesus. These men had known Jesus for years. They had grown up with Jesus. They had played with Jesus as a boy, and yet now in adulthood, they don't really know their brother. Right? John makes it explicit they don't believe in him. They will, but not now. And so they see an opportunity for their older brother an opportunity for him to seize upon the hustle and the bustle of the city and what's happening at the Feast of Booths and Jesus' rising popularity at these crazy things that he's saying and the crazy things that he's doing. And so the brothers say, Jesus, that's where the masses are. Go to the city. Show yourself to the world. Become the talk of the town. We might say in our modern day, build your brand. Make a name for yourself and maybe for us too. Be the rock star and the influencer that you were destined to be, Jesus. Right? These guys, it's almost like they're Jesus' self-appointed hype men, right? Self-appointed PR guys. And yet they've got him all wrong. Because Jesus came to glorify the Father. Not himself. And the brothers are actually spewing the temptation that Jesus has already heard in the desert when he was confronted with the devil himself in Matthew chapter 4. 
Verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And of course, Jesus wanted no part of this because Jesus didn't come for himself. He came for the glory of the Father. He came to do the will of the Father. He'll say this explicitly later on, but for now he simply hints about where this is all heading. We first heard this phrase way back in chapter 2, verse 4, where he said, my time has not yet come. Remember he said that to his mom, the wedding at Cana? We talked a little bit about what it meant, and we remind you of what Jesus is saying. He's talking about the cross. Everything in Jesus' life is careening towards that cross. Because that's what He came to do. He was born to die. He was born to do the Father's will to save a people for Himself through His sacrifice and atonement on a Roman cross. And so far from living His own life, Far from living for his own glory, he is living for the will of the Father and he'll die doing it. And in turn, brothers and sisters, he will bring glory to us. More on that later. Jesus is tasked with bringing light to the sinfulness of men, the darkness of men, calling them to himself. So Jesus in this interaction with his brothers says to them, your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, and that's why you guys can go to the feast, but I can't, because my time has not yet come. And and let's just pause there for a moment, because I think this is where the application of this text maybe begins to hit us. On the surface, Jesus is telling his brothers that because they are just regular dudes, regular worshipers, normal Jewish citizens, there's no concern for them to go into this Jewish feast. But if we go a bit deeper, Jesus is actually indicting them that they are indistinguishable from the world. Right? There's no difference. There's no offense And of course, as our text points out, we'd expect that because they're not believers. Of course this is true for Jesus' brothers. But as we sit here this morning, and as we begin to digest this as followers of Jesus, as the church, perhaps we should ask the question, does the world hate us enough? We talked last week about the scandalous Example of Jesus. And here he indicts his brothers for being no different than the world. One pastor says this, I think helpfully, describing this situation in this scene. He says, Jesus Christ was against the world for the world. And if you and I are for the world, if we're loving it fearlessly, we will be controversial. If you're not controversial, you're not loving the world as he did. 
think that's interesting to chew on for a bit. It ties in with what we said last week a little bit, and the scandalous nature of the gospel. Again, it's not a call to be obnoxious. It's a call, though, I think. It's a reminder to be uncomfortable. An invitation to be church of Jesus, those of you who know and love the Lord Jesus, to be unpopular, if need be, for the sake of the gospel and the glory of the Father. And this, of course, goes against all of our instincts. We don't want to be thought of as strange or archaic or worse yet, hateful. And yet, the Father's will and glory will at times create this very thing. And Jesus just reminds us of that here. Well, we could go down a rabbit trail talking about how the church is perceived by the world But let's leave that aside for now and just remember Jesus came to glorify the Father, testifying to the truth in the midst of hate, and indeed He was hated for it. That's the first truth. Let's move on to the second. Not only did Jesus come to glorify the Father, but our text teaches us and reminds us and shows us that Jesus is more than good, not a liar, but He is the Christ. Jesus is more than good and not a liar. He is the Christ. Of course, I'm picking those words out of the very text, out of the very perception of Jesus that people had in Jerusalem. As we move into verse 10, perhaps you're puzzled. right? Jesus says, I'm not going to the feast. And then what does He do? He goes to the feast. Well, I don't want you to over-index that reality. Jesus isn't lying. He's not deceiving His brothers. The Greek tense actually where Jesus says He wasn't going can carry with it the idea of I'm not going now. I mean, clearly Jesus didn't want to go in a public manner. He couldn't go in a public manner because He had already called out evil and His time had not yet come. But He did have plans to go. But it was under the radar. And the brothers didn't need to know about it. And it's in this section that John presents us with the confusion about who Jesus is among the people. And also about the clarity of who Jesus is from Jesus Himself. And that's what I want to focus on. First, the confusion. Verse 12. While some said, He is a good man. Alright, let's just sit on that for a moment. He's a good man. That's a great place to start with Jesus. But it's far from complete. After all, how many in our day and age, how many of your neighbors and colleagues would say and testify to the fact that Jesus, Jesus was a good man? Indeed, He was a good man. But not in the sense that the world says He was a good man. Not in the sense that the Jews of Jerusalem said he was a good man. The world's description of Jesus as good describes him as good in order to keep him at arm's length. But his goodness is more than admirable. It's more than just an example. His goodness was the perfect righteousness of God himself. And then there is the designation of deceiver. Verse 12 again. Others said, no, 
he is leading people astray. Now we're getting to another significant view of Jesus in the world. Jesus was a liar. Jesus was a self-deluded man who convinced others of that delusion. And now we have the mess of Christianity. In the Jewish world, the so-called deceit of Jesus was given a spiritual origin because their worldview was much more supernatural than ours. He was accused of being of the devil, right? They even say it explicitly in verse 20. But in our world, we've abandoned that kind of thinking about the historical Jesus and we instead keep Him at arm's length by rational reason and our enlightened thinking. Which is exactly what Jesus goes after here in our text. Let me try and explain this. You see, they can't help but be stunned at Jesus' teaching. Verse 15, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? But rather than consider that that might be evidence of his authority and of, of verifying who he says he is, they deny this. They deny his authority. And so Jesus, in this section, he brings up the story of the man that he healed on the Sabbath. Those of you who have been around, remember that story. And essentially, he makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. He says, man is circumcised on the Sabbath to honor the law, right? That's what you Jews want. Something you say you believe in and follow, but you really don't follow the law like you should. But when I restore someone on the Sabbath, their whole body, something surely greater and more wonderful, and more pleasing to Yahweh than the act of circumcision, you get angry with me. Jesus is stating, I have authority to teach as I do. I have authority to heal as I do because I am the Christ. I am from God. But again, they deny this. And notice the reason that the Lord Jesus gives for this in verse 17. It is because they don't want to do God's will. That's why they don't believe in who He is. And what is Jesus saying here? This is where it really gets challenging to think through. I think He's saying something profound about our search for salvation. And to put it simply and succinctly, we could say this, being a seeker, being a seeker of God is a faith commitment. Being a seeker of God is a faith commitment. And when I say that, I'm not saying that you have to believe before you believe. But it does mean that in searching for God, in, in trying to determine if indeed Jesus is who He says He is, you must surrender in some sense to God up front. Why? Because there is nothing else for you to stand on. There is nothing apart from God to stand on in order to evaluate whether He is true. He is the logic. He is the reason that you need in order to see Him. As the proverb says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
And again, there are lots smarter guys that can say this in a better way. So I'm going to read one of them. Theologian D.A. Carson says this. God's will is not simply to be thought about and assessed as if God is the object we may politely examine, dissect, and discuss, picking and choosing what we like of Him. Truth is self-authenticating. Divine revelation can only be assessed from the inside. And so Jesus is saying to these people, you do not accept who I am. You do not accept the authority because you do not seek God genuinely. You have not submitted to Him. It's a controversial thing. It's an infuriating thing to say. And these people had had enough. The evidence was clear. That wasn't the problem. The problem was their hearts that stubbornly refused to acknowledge Him despite all they had seen, despite all they had heard. And operating with false hearts leads to poor judgments. False hearts seek their own glory rather than God's. And therefore, right judgment begins with acknowledging that Jesus is the Christ. That He is more than good. He is certainly not a liar, but He is the Lord. And therefore, we must take Him at His word. Period. Well, one final interaction that I want to end with, and this is on a particularly hopeful note, as we come to the last section of verses 32 through 36, we learn here that Jesus' obedience brings glory. We're reminded here that Jesus' obedience brings glory. Jesus came to glorify the Father. He came to show and to prove that He is the Christ and His obedience will bring glory. As we come to the end of the passage, verse 32, the buzz around Jesus has become unbearable and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they're done. As far as they're concerned, he is a criminal that must be silenced and must be punished. But in the face of all this, where where does Jesus have his eyes? Actually, not on the cross, but on the glory beyond the cross. John chapter 17 is helpful. If you have your Bibles, you can turn. I'm going to read the first couple verses of John chapter 17. We'll unpack this later in coming weeks and months, however long it takes us to get there. This is from the high priestly pair, John chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's where Jesus' thoughts are. That's where Jesus' vision is. 
And with the Feast of Booths as a backdrop, Jesus is reminding us that yes, he came to tabernacle among us for a time, only to return to the glory from where he came, the glory of his Father, the glory that is due him after completing the work that he came to accomplish. And the good news that we celebrate, that we've sung about this morning, is that because of this, because Jesus came to glorify the Father, and because His obedience brings glory, not just to the Father, not just to Himself, but to us. Right? Paul says in Romans 8, the sufferings, they aren't worth comparing to the glory that is to come. One of my favorite passages, again, a little bit ahead in the book of John, John chapter 14, Jesus says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. What hope we have. What good news there is for us. And going back to the original question that I asked at the beginning or that was asked of me at the very beginning, what is life all about? It's about the Father's glory manifested in the person of Jesus and given to us, given to you and me, all those who cling to Him and find life in His name. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for these words and actions of our Savior recorded for us by Your servant, John. And we thank You for Your work, Lord Jesus, that indeed You did not glorify Yourself, but You glorified the Father. And You proved in Your dying, in Your rising, that You were the Christ. And now as you sit at God's right hand, glorified and exalted, we can look forward to the same resurrection that you experienced. To the same inheritance that is imperishable and unfading and kept in heaven for us. Oh Father, if there are those here or listening who have never heard of such wonderful news, who have never grabbed a hold of such wonderful news, may today be the day of salvation. And for us who know and love You, those who have walked with You for years, may we be renewed in the goodness of who You are, in the greatness of who You are. That indeed we would be used by You to spread this incredible message. Father, even as I was reminded at Presbytery just a few nights ago, that place You're preparing has many rooms. Not just for us in this room, but for those who have not yet come. And so may we be eager to invite. May we be eager to show the way to that glory. 
to that mansion, to those rooms. Oh, Father, we thank you. Impress these words upon our hearts for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.